This boy was in the same year as me at school. We went to the same school. Uh, But we had a big year. Uh, We had over 200 students in my year. Uh, So I didn't know him very well. But on the evening of August 24, uh, 1995, all of Sydney would soon know who he was. Because as he walked home from football training down Mill Street in Lidcombe, uh, two males came up to him, punched, kicked, stabbed, and robbed him. His name was Peter Savage, uh, and his attackers walked away with $10 and his train pass. We were in year 11, uh, and I remember the next morning when the news broke. It was like our whole class, in fact, our whole school, uh, was rudely pushed into a new world, a world with questions that weren't easy to answer. Uh, Instead of thinking about chemistry or physics or maths, we were wondering how someone could lose their life over $10. It was our, our first rude awakening that this world in so many ways is broken. You don't have to look very far to find evidence, do you? Every day the news reminds us uh, another school shooting, thousands of workers losing their jobs, uh, ruthless dictators having their own family members executed. We're told there's something like 27 million people in slavery of some kind in the world right now, more than they've ever been in history. And so the question comes, where is the justice? We see injustice all around us in big and small ways, whether it's racism embedded in communities or hearing how rich men have used their money to hide their appalling behaviour to women or the treatment of children in developing countries to work and to be married off at much too young an age or the global machines of commerce working so that you and I can purchase clothes or toys for only a few dollars. Economics that only works because workers in faraway lands are being paid a pittance for our benefit. And so we, we intrinsically know there needs to be justice. We know it from the time we're little, if you've ever watched children playing. When you divide up the blueberries and they sit there and they count how much is in each bowl to make sure that it's fair. There is a sense of fairness and a knowledge that there needs to be justice for rule-breaking. But we need to remember that this isn't just a personal thing. Sin is not just private or personal. Sin, as described in the Bible, is a falling short, a breaking of the law against the God of the universe. And we need to remember that sin has infected all of creation. It's infected all of creation. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I was... Uh, doing something I don't do often, and I was trying to cook for Christine, who was feeling a bit run down. Uh, I, had, I was trying to do the good Asian thing and cook her a pot of congee because she wasn't well. I had the rice and water on the stove. Um, things were going well until I had to stop and do something else, and it distracted me for a few minutes. Uh, and you know what happened. And that moment, the rice at the bottom of the pot got burnt because I had stopped stirring. And if you've ever done the same, you'll know the problem with burning something in a pot, don't you? 
It's not like burning a piece of toast where you can scrape off the charred bits or cut off the edges. Because the smell and flavor of the burnt food goes through the whole pot. Even if you take out the top three quarters and leave the burnt contents at the bottom, the whole pot has been tainted because it's been burnt. And Scripture says that is the same for creation. That while sin came into the world because of Adam and Eve, their choice to decide what good and bad was, that sin tainted all of creation. And creation has been dealing with the lingering smell of sin ever since. In Romans 8.22, it says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so as we come to these four trumpets in Revelation, they reflect this reality. Since sin entered the world in Genesis 3, it has affected creation itself. Now in AD 79, we know that Mount Vesuvius erupted, destroying the city of Pompeii along with several others. It's not not hard to imagine that the people hearing the book of Revelation would have known about this eruption. And so they would have heard of hail and fire being hurled onto the earth. They would have heard of a mountain being ablaze, landing in the sea. And the third and fourth trumpets were told, they capture this Old Testament imagery of empires falling, stars falling from heaven, is what Isaiah used to describe the fall of Babylon the moment when the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. There's a reference to wormwood or a plant that was bitter tasting, and in the Old Testament it was used to describe suffering and judgment. You see, these first four trumpets, remember, are painting pictures for us. We're meant to see that creation is an upheaval, that empires are coming down, that the great power of humanity doesn't last forever. Back in 2010, there was an eruption of a volcano in Finland, an ash cloud that covered large areas of northern Europe. And if you remember, uh, air traffic and millions of people were affected by this cloud. It seems that every summer there's the threat of bushfires in summer, whether in Australia or California. It seems to be more of a when than an if. Only last year in New Zealand, White Island, there was that eruption. 21 people died, many more injured. See, creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And yet somehow, even with that sin in creation, God continues to show grace, and he continues to restrain the effects of sin. If you remember last week in the seven seals, we were told a quarter of the earth was affected, a quarter of people were affected. Now, the language is one-third whether it's the earth, the tree, or the grass, living creatures, or the sun, moon, and stars, it's one-third. Now, it's not a a literal one-third, but there's a ratcheting up, isn't it? We've gone from one-quarter to one-third, but it's still being held in check. And you may have heard this phrase, if you've been to church for a while, that we are living in the now, but not yet. We've been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we're waiting for the day when he returns in glory. We are no longer slaves to sin, but for now, it's a daily choice to war against our natural desire to be our own gods. 
And so in that context, in the now but not yet, we need to remember that God's judgment is actually God's grace to us. God's judgment is God's grace to us. Discipline can be hard, isn't it? Whether you've learned something like an instrument or you're training for sports, discipline is hard. And when you receive feedback that is negative, it's hard to take. One of the things I'm learning to navigate this year uh, is helping my daughter with her piano practice. Uh, Helping her to understand that when she makes a mistake, I'm not belittling her or trying to make her feel bad. I'm trying to help her improve to get better. And it's the same if you've had a coach uh, for swimming or for tennis or, or a team sport. They will call you out if you're not doing the right thing. And hopefully the reason is not because they want to make you feel bad, but because they want you to improve to be better. And the Bible tells us that God's judgment is actually God's grace to us. When we get to the next two trumpets, trumpets five and six, we're greeted with images that sound like something from the Lord of the Rings, don't we? There are armies coming out of the great abyss, creatures like locusts given the power of scorpions. Uh, They don't eat grass or trees or plants, but they're there to torment people, torment people without the seal of God on their heads. Uh, Then we're told, again, they're like horses prepared for battle. It's a military image, this carnage of war that swallows up people. The sixth trumpet, there are four angels who've been prepared for this hour, for this day, this month and year, and they're released and they judge and kill one-third of mankind by plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur. I mean, what is going on here? Do we need to fear demonic armies and horses with snakes for tails? No. Remember, John is using the power of words to capture his hearers' imaginations. So people living under Roman rule would have seen the mighty horses of the cavalry and the soldiers going to battle. They would have seen the devastation left behind by a plague of locusts. And they would have understood from the Old Testament that just as the angel of the Lord judged the enemies of God as well as the Israelites when they sinned, that judgment on sin was very real. And here with the fifth and sixth trumpets, John is reminded here is that even the greatest empires of the earth are no match for God. See, the language of plagues should bring to mind the Exodus, the ten plagues that Moses would call down upon Pharaoh and his, his empire. Their escape through the Red Sea and God's judgment on Pharaoh who would not let the Israelites go to worship their God. The image of mountains falling into the sea and an army of locusts is actually in Jeremiah 51. And that was describing the fall of Babylon and that empire. And then fire and sulfur raining down goes all the way back to Genesis 19 when God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, these images are images of God judging human empires and human power. But perhaps the most important part of chapter 9 comes next. Look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, 
nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Do you see the purpose of the trumpets? The purpose of the plagues? The purpose is repentance. See, God, in his gracious wisdom, allows the groans of creation. He allows the fall of empires. He allows the nightmare of war so that people will repent of their sin. But we're told here that even after all of this, the rest of mankind did not repent. And and that echoes Jesus, doesn't it? Do you remember the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came up to him saying, give us a sign. And his answer was, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. You see, repentance doesn't come by signs and wonders. Repentance comes by turning to the king. More signs will not turn people's hearts. And while we are told that people will still not turn to God here, chapter 11 tells us that we can know that perfect justice will prevail. That even in a world that will not stop worshipping demons and idols that cannot see or hear or walk, perfect justice will prevail. I will never forget the first time I went door knocking uh, when I was on a summer mission. The place was Gunnada, uh, country New South Wales. It was January. Uh, it was stinking hot, uh, 40 plus degrees in the midday, uh, and it was so hot by 8 a.m. you already needed a shower. Uh, it was my first time door knocking, uh, and I was terrified. I'd been paired up with another team member, and we prayed on the corner of the street. We were about to walk down. Uh, and I think she was terrified too. And we went to the first house and knocked on the door. There was no answer, but we could hear the television. Should we wait? Should we move on? We knocked again and an elderly man came to the door. We explained that we were from the mission team and wanted to share what Christians believed. His response was that he didn't believe in religion because religion caused too many problems. Too many wars had been fought in the name of religion. On top of that, he couldn't believe in God because the world was too unfair. There was too much injustice in the world, too much of the world's natural riches taken from the poor by the rich. Too many cases of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And you know, he was right. There is too much injustice in the world. And the thing that surprised him as we spoke was that we agreed with him when he thought we would disagree. When we reach the final trumpet in Revelation, instead of natural disasters or armies going out or wars, there's a very different picture, isn't there? Look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So it's the seventh trumpet. Do you remember the seventh seal last week? When the seventh seal was opened, there was absolute silence. We talked about it being a reflection of God's complete authority, that when creation stands before its creator, 
what have we got to say? What arguments are there to be made? But here, there's another aspect to this moment when God is revealed, and that is worship. Look at verse 16. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Here we see justice finally mirroring and meeting injustice. Even the way that John writes, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and our Messiah. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. God will destroy those who destroy the earth. And the central idea, the time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who fear your name, both small and great. See, here at the seventh trumpet is the great moment of justice for all of creation, when God is finally and rightfully recognized as the creator and his Messiah, Jesus, is enthroned with all things placed under his feet. Did you catch here? There's a little language thing. Previously in the book of Revelation, God has been described as the Lord God who was and is and is to come. But here, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. See, from this moment, we're not waiting anymore for God to come. He's come. This is the moment. And from this moment, his rule extends forever and ever. See, that gentleman in Gunnedah who could not believe in a God who allowed so much injustice in the world hadn't understood one thing. Justice will prevail. He was absolutely right about how wrong it is that powerful people get away with evil, that the disadvantaged are treated as less than bearers of God's image. He was right because that is how the world works. And that is what a world tainted by sin looks like. But a time is coming when all will hear God and they will see his great power and see him begin to reign, judging the dead and rewarding his servants. And what that brings to followers of Jesus is freedom. It means that in the macro grand scale of things, we don't need to be overwhelmed by the injustice of the world. See, God extends his grace to restrain the effects of sin. Yes, creation is tainted by sin, but its effects would be far worse without God's gracious rule. And while justice now is imperfect, there is real justice that can occur now. So when verses like Micah 6.8 tell us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, that is a command to us that we should take seriously. If God and his perfect justice will prevail, then it means we can make real choices about the way we behave, the way we spend our money, the things we spend our time and attention on. 
It means turning our hearts to what God is focused on. And when we get down to our micro scale, our own personal circumstances, then when we understand God's perfect justice will prevail, it frees us from the urge to fight our own battles. It releases us from feeling like we must be vindicated right here and now because God will be the one who vindicates us. If God, the one who sees all things and knows all things, including the hearts and motives of men, is the one who would judge perfectly, then I don't need to struggle and fight for my rights, for my reputation, or retaliate in my own strength when I feel wronged. That's how Paul can write in Romans 12. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. See, I can misread motives. Somebody's actions might have unintended consequences. I may not know the whole story or understand what someone else is going through. But because the perfect, all-seeing, all-knowing, creator God of the universe would judge all things perfectly, then I am free to let go of my desire for revenge, for justification. He is the one who justifies. He is the one who repays. So where does that leave us today? We live in a world that is affected by sin in ways large and small. And while there is real justice in this world, it's often imperfect or incomplete. Revelation reminds us that the perfect justice of God will prevail, and it will prevail for all eternity. But where does that leave us? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, in the now but not yet, we still deal with death, don't we? The wages of sin is death. And yet, because of Jesus, because of his death, we can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that is the word for us today. In the now but the not yet, stand firm. Let nothing move you from Jesus. Dig deep into the gospel. Be steadfast and immovable when it comes to God's word. You see, we don't 
move on from the gospel, do we? Trees don't grow and flourish by moving on from where they were planted. We need to dig deep and let God's word and his spirit grow us like a tree planted by streams of water. And then we are to give ourselves to the work of the Lord because it's not a waste of time. You see, when the final trumpet sounds, when the day of the Lord comes, even when everything else passes away, our possessions, our properties, our successes, our failures, our achievements, what will not pass away is our labor in the Lord. Because our labor in the Lord goes back to two things. Loving the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor. Worshipping our creator God and loving our neighbors in word and deed, God and people. Those are the things that will never pass away because God and people are immortal. C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That is why our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Today, as we hear these seven trumpets of Revelation, may we not be alarmed at these pictures that we hear. As we look at the world, may we not be overwhelmed at the effects of sin and injustice that we see. But let's continue loving God and loving our neighbors, whether that's the people we work with, the families God has given us, the people who live around us, the friends that we have, because there are no ordinary people. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at a world that has been touched by sin in every way, we thank you for your grace in restraining the effects of sin. We thank you for your grace that even in judgment you are seeking that people turn to you in repentance. And Lord, we thank you that on that final day there will be true, perfect, and lasting justice for a world that so desperately needs it. And Lord, while we live in the now but not yet, we pray that you will shape us, guide us by your Spirit, that we might be people who may stand firm and that our labor in you might bring you much glory and lead people to repentance. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.